0: So, good evening. Over the last three weeks, as hopefully you remember, I've been exploring the theme of effort in the practice using the framework of the four great efforts, which is how the Buddha defined right effort in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. And last week, I focused mostly on the third of these four efforts, which is the effort to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. And I spoke about the Brahmavihara practices as being one very powerful way of cultivating skillful mind states. So tonight, I'd like to finish the sequence by exploring the fourth of the four great efforts. And this is how it's defined in this context of the Noble Eightfold Path. Here, the person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So in summary then, this fourth effort is asking us to maintain skillful mind states when they do come up and to try to deepen them so that they become a resource that supports us on the path to freedom. And I've been appreciating giving this series of talks over four weeks, really seeing the benefit of exploring it over time because as many of you are noticing for yourselves, this uh, very directly, there is this progression from working with unskillful states to increasingly more skillful ones. So I'm pretty sure that if you think back to the start of your retreat, whether that was three weeks ago or nine weeks ago, it's likely that back then you were experiencing a higher proportion of difficult mind states than you are now. It's possible that back then it may have seemed like that was all you were dealing with, various combinations of the hindrances. But over these last few weeks or months of practice, with the support of the silence and the seclusion, the Brahma-Vihara qualities and mindfulness, these afflictive states have quite naturally started to subside. Which is not to say that there might not be sudden and unexpected spikes of painful states at times. But overall, if we had some way of measuring the balance, that shift from in the direction of increasing skillful states, I think will be clear. And I sometimes wish we had some kind of technology, some kind of psychic MRI machine or deep X-ray or something that could take a snapshot of our minds so that we could have perhaps a more objective way to measure these states. Because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, we often don't have a very accurate perception of our own progress and particularly when we're deep in retreat like we are now. So just to say based on the individual meetings that I've been having with many of you and from what I hear from the other teachers too, there is, we can feel and hear from you this shift in the direction of more skillful mental states and recognizing that and acknowledging it brings more confidence, more trust in this path that yes, we are moving in the right direction. So last week I outlined a whole list of these different skillful states of mind, including the Brahmavihara qualities. And I also briefly mentioned the list of the seven factors of awakening, being mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi or concentration, and equanimity. And it's this list that I'd like to focus on tonight, because these specific mental qualities are the ones that provide the most conducive conditions for insight to arise. So this list of the seven factors of awakening appears in the fourth Satipatthana, the fourth establishment of mindfulness. And according to Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar monk and practitioner, The purpose of actually all of the techniques that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta is to develop these seven awakening factors. So all the other practices that we've been offering over the course of this retreat are all different ways of helping the awakening factors to emerge. So I think it's worth getting to know them, to begin to understand, to know whether they're present or not. And if not, how to help support them to arise and to get stronger. And I just want to acknowledge that for some of you, perhaps this name, the awakening factors, might make them seem a little esoteric or lofty or mysterious. But as we start to explore them, I'm confident that everyone here is already experiencing them whether or not we name them to ourselves as awakening factors. So I'll give you the list again, because for some of you it might be new information, but you will recognize at least the first one, mindfulness. Investigation, energy, joy or rapture, calm, samadhi or concentration, and equanimity. And I'll go into each of them in a little bit more detail soon. But first, just to say a little bit more about their purpose on the path. These seven factors are called awakening factors or enlightenment factors. Because when all seven of them are strong and in balance, they provide the optimum conditions for deep insights to arise. The kind of insights that lead to awakening, hence the name awakening, also known as enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana, or nirvana, to use the Sanskrit. So although nibbana is the whole goal, the purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what these terms mean. And I know for myself that... uh, In the beginning, words such as enlightenment sounded pretty abstract, remote, distant, perhaps even meaningless, not particularly appealing. And perhaps for some of you, there might be a vague idea of maybe getting there, wherever there is, at some point in the far distant future. But right here and now, those terms don't sound that relevant or appealing. Perhaps for others, there might be a sense that nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering. But again, there might be a sense that, well, that's going to take decades battling with the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive energies before we might ever experience anything remotely like freedom. So I'm just pointing to a common uh, perception that nibbana is something remote and perhaps not that applicable to our own lives. And that it might even feel presumptuous or arrogant to think that it might be something we could experience for ourselves. So for me at least, it's been very helpful to hear teachers uh, such as Joseph Goldstein talk about Nibbana in a much more accessible and relevant way. As the heart-mind free from greed, free from hatred, free from ignorance in other words free from the afflictive energies that torment us so much and in that definition of nibbana it's something that we can experience for ourselves at least in moments whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free from the hindrances and these moments might at first be fleeting perhaps even just nanoseconds But as we learn to recognize them and to strengthen them, they become more and more the default setting of the mind. So from this perspective, Nibbana is not some kind of big bang experience where we achieve some sudden and radical transformation and can abide in a state of permanent bliss for the rest of our lives. Nibbana is not a static state that we get, but a process that we're all going through. So that's why, for myself, I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun and it has a, suggests that nibbana is a state. Whereas awakening is a verb. It's an action or a process. You could say it's a process of letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the skillful qualities of heart and mind such as the Viharas and the Awakening Factors, which is exactly what we're doing here on this retreat. So this understanding of nirvana as being a natural human experience was written about by the Thai meditation master from the last century, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he also describes our practice as a process, a process of cultivating moments of what he calls temporary nirvana, until eventually these convert to complete nirvana. So I'd like to read you a few passages about what he says in relation to this. He says, Temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical or temporary nirvana keeps all of us alive and well and is a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality, that is to say, we instinctively go in searches of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements or desires. Whenever this happens, A little nirvana always comes in, and the phenomenon will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So, I find that uh, very encouraging that we have this natural orientation towards freedom. And really, our practice during this retreat is to keep reorienting ourselves to those moments of freedom that Ajahn-Buddhadasa is pointing to. Those moments when the hindrances are absent and one or more of the awakening factors are present. So how do we actually practice with these awakening factors? I'll read you the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta and I'll give them in relation to just the first of these seven factors which is mindfulness. But keep in mind that The same text is then repeated in relation to investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, samādhi, and equanimity. So the text says here, if the mindfulness and awakening factor is present, one knows. There is the mindfulness awakening factor present in me. If the mindfulness awakening factor is not present, one knows. There is no mindfulness awakening factor in me. One knows how the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise and how the arisen mindfulness awakening factor can be perfected by development. So to begin that process, we learn to familiarize ourselves with each of the awakening factors, knowing what they are and learning how to recognize how they feel in the heart and the mind. And even though we might not know in detail yet what each of these factors are, it can be helpful from time to time just to silently run through the list and to notice are they present or not. And there's a big caveat here, though, that It's important not to make these awakening factors into some kind of project, trying to conjure up these different qualities, tying ourselves up in knots, trying to know if they're there or not, or falling into judgment if they seem to be absent. That would be a form of wrong effort. So the other night I really appreciated uh, the interaction that Andrea described with her teacher, Sero Utejania when she had told him that she'd got a headache trying to practice something that he talked about. You might remember that when she reported this to him, he said something like, stop doing that. Nothing I tell you is anything to do. It's just information for your practice. So in a similar way, these uh, awakening factors, the invitation is really to take them lightly To uh, approach them with lightness and trust that the process of becoming familiar with them will happen quite naturally. You don't have to do them. You don't have to make them happen. But just let that information come in and be in the background. So to get the whole process started, we can begin, we need to begin with mindfulness. Just knowing what's happening in our bodies, our hearts, our minds. And to be particularly aware of what's happening in our minds. To be on the lookout for any of the hindrances, the afflictive mental states. Because if these are present, it's impossible for the awakening factors to emerge. There's a kind of a reciprocal relationship between them when the hindrances are present, the awakening factors can't be there. And the other way around, when the awakening factors are there, the hindrances are absent. So as the hindrances start to become less intense and at times to disappear, there's more opportunity for the awakening factors to arise. And mindfulness as an awakening factor, is referred to in the text as being unremitting, in other words, continuous. And that's one reason why we've been putting so much emphasis on this moment-to-moment awareness. And one of the advantages of a longer retreat like this is we can start to see, to become familiar with those circumstances where we tend to habitually lose mindfulness. So I mentioned this in one of my previous talks. For many people, the dining room is one scene of the crime. Sometimes going out for long walks and we can find ourselves getting lost in thoughts. For other people, it might be a particular time of day, perhaps. Towards the end of the day, as we get tired, the mindfulness starts to fall away. But if we're approaching mindfulness in a sustained and balanced way it really doesn't take that much effort so maintaining mindfulness continually throughout the day starts to build up a momentum and before too long it leads naturally into the second of the awakening factors investigation of dhammas and this uh Brings me Reminds me of the title of a well-known book by Saito Utejaniya. Mindfulness alone is not enough. So this second awakening factor, investigation of dhammas, or investigation for short, might seem a little less obvious to begin with, partly because dhammas is one of those Pali words that has so many different meanings. Phenomena, how we experience the world, the natural law, the truth of how things are, the Buddha's teachings. So, with this factor, we're investigating our experience and understanding it in accordance with the Buddha's teachings. And particularly in terms of knowing, understanding whether our mental states are wholesome or unwholesome, whether they're leading to progress on the path or moving in the opposite direction. So, for example, if mindfulness starts to reveal a habitual pattern in the mind, such as, for example, resentment or self-pity or boredom or righteous anger or daydreaming, investigation, we might ask ourselves, what's going on here? Is this helpful for progress or not? And if the answer is no, then we need to try and find an antidote to whatever that pattern or mind state is. And there's a challenge with this particular factor because it's not an invitation to reinforce our existing habits of intellectual analysis or getting caught up in speculation or theorizing and all the different kinds of mental proliferation that we love to get lost in all our views and opinions and beliefs about how right we are and how wrong everyone else is. Instead, This investigation is pointing to a more embodied or intuitive type of wisdom that's not really so intellectual and it doesn't take a lot of effort. So in my own practice, uh, particularly at times when I've realized that mindfulness has got lost or become weak in some way, I sometimes use three very simple questions to help re-establish connection with my experience and to get a sense of whether the hindrances are present or not. So the first question is just simply, what's happening in the body right now? You might notice for yourselves, what physical sensations are you uh, you aware of right now? And then the second question is, what's happening in the heart mind right now? So what thoughts, emotions, moods, all the different forms of mental activity are you aware of right now? So it's just a kind of a snapshot. And then the third question is, how am I relating to this experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind about it? So for example, is there some kind of wanting, holding on, grasping? These are forms of greed in relation to the experience. Or the opposite, some kind of not wanting or resisting experience. This is aversion. Or is there not knowing or confusion? This is ignorance. So when I describe the questions like that, it might sound like a lot of doing or thinking. But with practice, it's just very momentary. Just like, okay, body heart, mind, attitude, boom, boom, boom. And it's very intuitive and easy, but it gives us a quick snapshot about what's happening in our experience and if any of those sneaky hindrances are starting to come in. And if they are, then we need to perhaps find ways to help them release with some of the techniques I've spoken of in earlier talks. And when the hindrances do release, When the interest, the investigation becomes stronger, we naturally start to experience more energy. So this third factor of awakening is a factor of energy or virya. And you may not remember by now, but I spoke about that in my first talk three weeks or so ago. So I'm not going to say too much more about it here, except to just name that when energy is an awakening factor, It's a steady and sustained energy. Often we think of energy as being a sudden burst of mental or physical action. But what's required here is energy that has some continuity to it. It's sustainable. And in discourses, it's described as unshakable. And when this factor of awakening arises and starts to become stronger, At times it becomes quite effortless, as if we were surfing a wave. The momentum of the practice feels to just be carrying us. And we really don't have to do much at all, except keep paying attention. And because this experience of effortlessness is usually so pleasant, it can quite naturally give way to the next factor of awakening, which is rapture, joy. Or piti in Pali. And this word piti is sometimes translated as rapt interest, delight, or joy. And it's a direct antidote to the hindrance of ill will. And just to say that the joy that's referred to here isn't so much the kind of happiness that comes from sense pleasures. It's a more refined mental type of happiness. And because of this, it's more sustainable than ordinary sense-based happiness. So the kind of pleasure that might come from eating ice cream, for example, most people can only eat one or maybe two bowls of ice cream before they start to feel a bit sick. But when joy or rapture is present, As an awakening factor it can be sustained for many hours sometimes even days without much effort and the quality of rapture it can be experienced in different ways in the body and to different degrees of intensity so the discourses describe a spectrum from what's known as minor rapture at one end of the scale through to pervading rapture at the other so, minor rapture can be experienced as light tingling in the body, or trembling, or goosebumps, the fine vibrational energy. And at the other end of the scale, when it's described as pervading rapture, Mahasisero has described it as being a sublime feeling of happiness and exhilaration, filling the whole body with an exceedingly sweet and subtle thrill. So that perhaps sounds good, perhaps it's been experienced as pleasant, but it's not the goal of this practice. And in terms of the factors of awakening, it's just one of the stops along the way. We don't want to get stuck there. For the development of the awakening factors to continue, we need to let go of any attachment to even this more pleasant aspect of the practice. We can allow the rapture to steady and to stabilize so that it naturally releases into tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. This is pointing to a profound calmness of body and mind. And it's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And because it's such a refined and subtle state, it might take a bit of getting used to. Most of us are not used to calmness this deep. And because not much is going on, sometimes it can feel a little unfocused. And I've noticed a few times when I've been preparing teachings on these seven factors or when I'm um, contemplating them in my own practice and I run through the list, tranquility seems to be the one that I miss out the most. And you might find something similar in your own practice. There's one or two of the seven that you consistently tend to uh, forget about. And that can be useful information because it's often pointing to the one that needs the most development. So for me it's tranquility because that stillness and calm is quite subtle and refined. It can be easy to overlook. But when it is more fully developed, it leads into samādhi, or concentration. This Pali word samādhi is usually translated as concentration, but I think we've made the point before that this English word concentration is not a great translation because it has associations of a kind of a forced or narrow or even fixated attention. And there's this implication of kind of furrowed brow over-efforting, which actually prevents samadhi from developing. So perhaps some more accurate and helpful translations of samadhi are words like unification of mind, non-distractability, unscattered attention, or absorption... And all of these words are pointing to the way that the mind in samadhi becomes naturally absorbed in the meditation object. The attention just doesn't move anywhere and it becomes completely unwavering. Now, Even though perhaps you may not have experienced the deepest states of samadhi on this retreat, most of you have had at least some moments where the mind became more settled. And what a relief that is. Because in daily life, we're constantly bombarded by sense contacts, stimulated by sights and sounds and tastes and smells and touches and thoughts and emotions going on thousands of times a second. And we don't even recognize the impact of all of that stimulation until we have an experience of its absence, as we can here on retreat, when the mind does become settled and absorbed. So this awakening factor of samādhi can give our whole nervous system a rest, and it's deeply satisfying, nourishing. And concentration not only feels pleasant, it also powerfully supports our capacity to see clearly, to gain insight. So the insight teacher, Shin Zen Yang, he compares concentration to a microscope, which is also an instrument for seeing clearly. He says, you have to have a microscope before you can see the fine structure of the cells of your hand. And you have to develop some of this concentration power before you can see the very significant deep structure of your own psyche, your own mind and body. So this stability of mind helps with clear seeing. And then from that state of concentration, the final awakening factor arises. This is the awakening factor of equanimity. The mind that is perfectly balanced, deeply at ease, not clinging to anything in the world, as it says in the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta. It's not clinging to anything and it's not pushing anything away either. It's just at rest, aware, poised, but not reacting. It's a very refined state of mind, and even the subtle vibrations of energy and rapture aren't there anymore. So this state can be sustained for even longer than the previous ones. And I've already spoken a bit about equanimity in the talk I gave the other night about the Brahma Viharas. So I won't say too much more about it now. But just to keep in mind that equanimity is not a state of disconnection. The mind that's resting in equanimity is fully aware of what's happening. It's alert and alive. But it's in a state of non-reactivity that allows for the deepest insights to arise. So now uh, we've had a brief overview of what each of these are. I thought to just uh, run through the list again quite quickly and invite you to notice whether these factors can be recognized in your own mind or not. And Bhikkhu Analyo says, you know, often these awakening factors might appear as just little buds, but just like flower buds. They have the potential to develop into beautiful flowers. So even as you're sitting here right now, you might notice, you might ask, is mindfulness present right now or not? And just in asking the question, the answer will always be yes. So that's an easy win to begin with. Just asking the question, we've already re-established mindfulness. We're no longer lost in whatever we were doing just before. The second awakening factor is investigation. So is there interest and curiosity about your experience right now? And again, just asking the question about investigation is itself an example of investigation. So we have another easy success. The third factor is energy. How's the energy in the mind right now? Too much? Not enough? Just to notice. If the energy feels quite balanced, what's that like? And then how about rapture or joy? sometimes known as rapt interest or delight. Is there some trace of joy, delight, interest in your experience right now? Anything at all you can appreciate? How about tranquility? Is the mind calm right now? Is the body still? How does that feel? How about samadhi or concentration? Stability of mind. Right now is the mind somewhat focused? Undistracted? Or not? And then equanimity. The mind that stays steady not getting pulled into wanting or pushed into not wanting? Is there any sense of balance, of ease? So when we just run through the checklist like that, we're strengthening our ability to recognize how these awakening factors feel in the body and the mind. And as we start to recognize them in our own practice, we might also notice the different effects they have on ourselves. So some of these factors help to raise energy, and some help to calm it. And when all seven of them are in balance, the mind comes to a place of alert stillness. So the first of the awakening factors, mindfulness, is neutral in terms of energy. It's the foundation that all the others develop from. Then after mindfulness, the next three factors are the more stimulating ones, the ones that lift the energy level. So these are investigation, energy and rapture. And these are followed by the three quietening factors of tranquility, concentration and equanimity. So as we bring awareness to what's happening in the mind, At times we might very subtly emphasize one or more of these factors so that we can maintain this balance between energy and calm. So, for example, at times the tranquility factor might start to get too strong and it might start to shade over into the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Then we can use the factor of investigation to help rouse a bit more energy. Simply asking those questions that I mentioned earlier. What's happening in the body, the heart and mind? How's the relationship to that? That can bring up the energy level. At other times, the imbalance might go the other way and we have too much energy in the mind. Perhaps rapture comes up very strongly and we start to feel quite elated. Then it might be time to just gently turn towards the calming factor of tranquility, perhaps by practicing mindfulness of breathing, using the mental note of calm on the outbreath, as we offered in some of the earlier guided meditations. So although these seven awakening factors are profoundly wholesome qualities, at least to begin with, for many people they take a bit of getting used to, So I'd like to talk a little bit more generally now about some of the challenges that can come up when we are moving into these more skillful mind states. So after the mind has been secluded for some time, as it has been for all of us here on this retreat, the hindrances gradually weaken. At times they can disappear altogether. And even this at times can be disconcerting because... We've got so used to wrestling with sense, desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt, they're unpleasant but at least it gives us something to do, keeps us occupied. (laughs) So when they've gone away, at times there can almost be a nostalgia, (laughs) can feel like there's nothing happening in our practice or even that we've lost our mindfulness because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because the grosser mind states, the so-called defilements have fallen away, but our mindfulness isn't quite refined enough yet to notice their absence, or to notice the more subtle mental qualities that can come up in their place. So we might start to discover too ways that we're unconsciously addicted to the drama of practice, to the highs and lows. We might secretly be searching for catharsis of some kind, or craving intensity, or perhaps even afraid of a more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. So when the practice does settle into a more stable and quiet phase, we might start trying to get some of that intensity back again by pushing or forcing or striving to make something happen. And I talked in one of my earlier talks how Mainstream society does condition us to be constantly productive and doing. So it's understandable that we would bring this same attitude to being on retreat, trying to get results. So we need to train ourselves to get used to how it feels to have a mind without lust or greed, without anger or fear, without delusion or ignorance. The absence of these difficult mind states may not last very long. But when we're in one of those cycles, we might start to experience the loosening of what some teachers refer to as karmic knots. These are aspects of our personal history or conditioning that feel very deep and entangled. And as these karmic knots start to loosen... It can feel more like we're unraveling or even falling apart because we've got so used to orienting ourselves around them. So when our usual or habitual defense mechanisms and strategies for self-protection start to lessen, we might have this feeling of being on shaky ground. And I've noticed in my own practice at times that there can um, sometimes feels to be like a kind of a backlash in response to this newfound spaciousness, so sometimes I'll notice an opening into states of calm and ease and sometimes deep uh, pleasantness, and then the mind will suddenly go into overdrive telling all kinds of ridiculous stories and getting lost in fantasies and creating imaginary doomsday scenarios and anything at all to sabotage this more open, spacious way of being. So just to acknowledge that this phase of the practice can be quite uncomfortable at times, just like any kind of transition can be. I kind of think of it as being like spiritual puberty, There's that really awkward phase before we get used to our newly adult bodies and hearts and minds. Or perhaps, maybe a bit more poetically, it's like the metamorphosis from being a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. And as I think you know, when a butterfly first emerges from its cocoon, it needs to rest and to allow its wings to harden before it can fly. And in a similar way, there are phases of the practice where we do feel a sense of shakiness or groundlessness or fear. And at those times, this other wing of awakening of compassion, of patience and kindness is hugely important. And to whatever extent we can, to trust that everything we're experiencing is just part of a natural unfolding So a couple of years ago I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition the word that's usually translated as meditation more literally means getting used to it. And this idea of getting used to it can be interpreted in many different ways. But I think of getting used to it as being getting used to this new territory. So, the analogy of being in New Territory has been quite helpful in my own practice. That just as we can explore the world out there, we can explore the inner landscapes of the mind. Some of you have traveled in different countries, or hiked in different landscapes, or perhaps been armchair travelers and seen different terrains on TV. So, in this metaphorical journey, we might find ourselves at times crossing snow-covered mountains or slogging our way through dense tropical jungle or strolling along white-sand beaches or trying to navigate over swampy marshland at times. And each time the terrain changes, we need to relearn how to navigate it. So obviously, if we're walking along a beach, we don't need our snowshoes anymore. And if we're trying to traverse swampy marshland, we might need to quite delicately feel our way across from relatively solid pieces of ground so that we don't lose our footing. But over time, as we get more familiar with this terrain, we understand the best way to navigate it. And then we can come back to balance again much more easily. So coming back to this fourth effort, the fourth great effort, which is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. As these wholesome mental states do come up and get stronger, the amount of effort that we need to maintain them becomes less and less. So it's something of a paradox but sometimes I think of this fourth great effort as being the great effort of no effort because at this stage of the practice our effort needs to be really refined and what we're really doing is uh, keeping on getting out of the way So it's a bit like we we need to not judge ourselves at those times when we do get caught in striving of some kind, wanting or expectations or desire for attainment. Because knowing when we're unbalanced is how we come back to balance. It's a bit like riding a bike. Even the most experienced rider is making sort of micro-wobbles in order to stay upright. But over time, this effort becomes more and more effortless and this is a fruit of the practice at times we can experience this effortless effort as a kind of a positive chain reaction where one skillful state kicks off the next each awakening factor flows naturally into the next and the next in a kind of effortless upward spiral so, when I think of this, I often have the image of um hawks or eagles, how they can soar on those thermal updrafts, and I spend quite a bit of my time each year in Australia in New South Wales, and uh there's a pretty special landscape there called the Warumbungle National Park, and Warumbungle is the perfect word for this region because it's very rugged. It's a landscape of ancient, primitive, jagged volcanic peaks. And I was staying camping there with a friend on one occasion. We climbed up to the top of one of these uh, knife-edge kind of peaks. And because we were so high, we had an amazing view of the native wedge-tailed eagles that were soaring on thermal currents just above us. And they were so close that I could see all the details on the small feathers of their underbellies. And it was so inspiring to see how these massive birds could just keep soaring upwards on wide, wide wings, seemingly without any effort whatsoever. So keeping that image in mind, I'd just like to read quite a long passage from the Suttas It's a description of how the momentum of our practice develops naturally when we can set up this chain reaction of skillful mind states. This chain reaction starts with paying attention to our ethical conduct, our sila or virtue, and it leads all the way upwards to the highest state possible, nibbana, in this quote referred to as the further shore. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will, may freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there's no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, There is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. The quote continues through a few more stages to this. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will may I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. In this way, mental qualities lead to mental qualities. Mental qualities bring mental qualities to their consummation, the sake of going from the near to the further shore. So may we all experience the skillful mental qualities that lead to the further shore. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment and let the words dissolve.